Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network interview with Eric Cohen, Executive Director of the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Hello, Eric. Hello. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. Today, Eric is going to talk about citizenship for children. Um, Eric, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, your work, your background, and your expertise on this subject matter. Sure. So as you said, I'm the executive director of the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. I'm also an attorney. The Immigrant Legal Resource Center, or ILRC as we call it, is a national resource center on all sorts of issues of immigration law and policy for low-income and working-class immigrants. We're also on the advisory committee for Ian. We've been around since 1979, and we're one of the foremost providers of training, technical assistance, and providing publications on all sorts of immigration law for, as I said before, low-income and working-class immigrants. Um, and specifically on naturalization and citizenship for children, which we group together as a project, uh, we are, we produced the first comprehensive naturalization citizenship manual, um, in history in the United States, and it's called the Naturalization and U.S. Citizenship, the Essential Legal Guide. And, um, we're now in the 11th edition. It's probably the most widely used naturalization manual among nonprofits in the country. And, and that manual is really a good Bible for all sorts of naturalization issues, including citizenship issues like derivation of citizenship, acquisition of citizenship, and, and Section 322 citizenship, which are the ways that, that, that most children become citizens who are born in, in another country. And I personally head up all of our naturalization and citizenship efforts, including the derivation, acquisition, and, and Section 322 citizenship for children areas. Thanks, Eric. And I should mention that Immigrant Legal Resource Center is a partner within the Immigration Advocates Network and that you coordinate our library resources online on citizenship. That's right. And for those people listening, you can log on to Ian. Um, if you're not a member, you can apply to be a member. It's free. And you can access the whole library, especially the charts on naturalization, um, charts on derivation and acquisition of citizenship. And we'll be talking about those a little later on. So why is it important to understand this area of law? You know, that's a really good question. And I have really two basic answers. The first one is going to be a little more theoretical. And the second one a little more practical. In order to strengthen our democracy and be a more full-fledged democracy, we need to have as many participants in the United States engaging in a democracy. And often people abroad are sitting on the sidelines. People born abroad, I'm sorry, are sitting on the sidelines. But if those people who are born abroad, you can help them naturalize or you can help them realize that they acquired citizenship at birth or derived citizenship um, or there's ways for them to become citizens, then they're more likely to leave the sidelines and become part of the democratic society through civic engagement and through voting. Um, so that's more the theoretical reason why it's important to know this area of law citizens for children. Practically, um, every, people want to know where they stand. They want to know, are they a green card holder? Are they undocumented? Are they a U.S. citizens? 
People want to know, and we need to, as practitioners, be able to provide them those answers. Additionally, when a client comes to you and says, I need help in getting a green card, or I need help in getting a visitor's visa, or I need help in getting my student visa reauthorized, it's important to note that if that person is already a U.S. citizen, you can't help them do that. What you can help them do is prove it. And there are a lot of people running around who are U.S. citizens and don't know it. In fact, my very first client when I was in law school in a clinical program in law school, we went up to do bonds hearings uh, up in San Francisco uh, in the court. And my very first client was in deportation proceedings because he had been arrested and convicted of a crime. He had his green card. He was going to be deported. And we found out in a five-minute interview that this guy was actually a U.S. citizen and didn't know it. He wasn't dumb. It's just that the laws can be a little bit arcane on citizenship for children. And it turns out he had derived citizenship when he was about 16. And so he couldn't be deported. We went. We proved that he was a citizen by getting his U.S. passport. And the judge dismissed the case. And he walked out of the courtroom. So it's really important that everyone understand in with working with any client, that you always want to look to see if they acquired or derived citizens at some point in time. Because if they did, that's the relief that you should be looking towards. Not naturalizing the person, not getting the person a green card, not trying to uh, defend the person in deportation proceedings. I note there was a recently issued circuit court decision in which an attorney was found to have provided ineffective assistance of counsel for failing to investigate a client's potential claim for citizenship. And, you know, my heart went out to him because it, it would not necessarily have occurred to me to ask those, in, those questions and make those inquiries. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good point. And, and it, it's so vital um, to ask these. And it takes very, very little time. The, the basic questions are, was your, did you ever have any parent who was a U.S. citizen or is a U.S. citizen? Or did you have any grandparent who was a U.S. citizen or is a U.S. citizen? Those are two basic questions. And if the answer to no is no to all those, well, they didn't acquire or derive citizenship at birth or through derivation. And so you don't need to ask any more questions. If they answered yes to any of those, then you have to start going through the whole analysis of whether they might have acquired or derived citizenship. Yeah, let's talk about that. What are the ways that um, children become citizens, uh, whether acquired or derived, and how are they different? So there are actually four ways that, that, that someone, a child, can become a U.S. citizen. The, the one that we're not going to talk about today, which is most common, is they're born in the United States. So I want to make sure that everyone knew that, obviously. But the three ways when we talk about citizenship for children are really three things. They're called acquisition of citizenship, derivation of citizenship, and Section 322 citizenship. So let's talk about acquisition of citizenship first. Um, so the key points of acquisition of citizenship are that obviously the child was born abroad and that the child had one or both parents who were U.S. citizens prior to the child's birth. So the basic requirement is you have to have had one or both parents born uh, U.S. citizens 
prior to your birth. It doesn't matter how that U.S. citizen's parents became a U.S. citizen. It doesn't matter if they acquired, if they derived, if they were born in the United States, if they naturalized. But the point is, you, you, the basic requirement is you have to have at least one parent who was born, who was a U.S. citizen. Um, then, the requirements, the other requirements for acquisition differ depending on lots of different factors. It depends on when the child was born, because the law keeps on changing. About every 10 or 15 years, since 1934 or so, the law has been changing. There also matters whether the child was illegitimate, that is, born out of wedlock, or legitimate, that is, born in wedlock. Different rules for illegitimate versus legitimate. And if you were born out of wedlock, different rules depending on if your mother was a U.S. citizen prior to your birth, or your father, or both. So so it can get kind of complicated, but the key point is to know that it's automatic if you acquire decisions at birth, and it can never be taken away from you, just like if you're born in the United States, I mean, unless you, you know, voluntarily renounce your citizenship, which is a whole other podcast. Um, and the way to prove it is by applying for a passport or by applying for a certificate of citizenship on an N-600. All right, and let's cover the basics for derivation. Okay, great. So derivation of citizenship is a little different. And by the way, the reason why I call it, uh, I ordered it acquisition derivation section 322 and the way I'm reviewing it, is whenever, just a little practice tip, whenever you're going over this with a client, I find it's best to go over it in that order. Did he acquire? If so, great, you don't need to do anything else, except for apply for a certificate of citizenship, of course, or passport. If he didn't acquire, then try citizenship, then try derivation of citizenship. If he didn't derive citizenship, then try section 322. So if you always go in that order, I find it's just a quick practice tip. It makes it more orderly, and it makes it much easier to figure it out. So let's talk about derivation of citizenship. Once again, it's for children born abroad. Um, and just like acquisition, it doesn't matter if your client is 50 years old now and coming to you seeing if he acquired citizenship at birth or derived citizenship when she was 17. What matters is what happened at the time she was born for acquisition and what happened before she was 18 under derivation. And it can't be taken away even if she or he didn't know that she derived or acquired citizenship. But let's talk about the factors of derivation of citizenship. Once again, as I said, born abroad, you have to be a lawful permanent resident. That's a key difference between derivation and acquisition. Acquisition, you're not a lawful permanent resident. In derivation, you have to be a lawful permanent resident. Then, at least one of your parents has to be a U.S. citizen. And it depends on when this all happened. It's dependent on whether or not you would derive and whether or not it's necessary to have one parent who was a U.S. citizen vis-a-vis both parents. And the law, just like acquisition, changes about every 15 years ago, the last change in derivation was in the Citizenship Act of 2000. The last change was about a dozen years ago, um, which, which really did liberalize um, 
and made the rules much more generous. But you also have to now be living in legal and fiscal custody of that U.S. citizen parent. So just a quick example, um, let's say, you know, uh, Gwen uh, was born in, in 2004, and she was born abroad, and she immigrates here with, to the United States with her parents, and um, they all get green cards in 2006. And then in 2011, uh, mom and dad end up naturalizing. Um, Gwen, if she's living in the legal and physical custody of mom and dad, is automatically a U.S. citizen um, under derivation. So because Gwen's not allowed to apply for citizenship, uh, no child is allowed to apply for naturalization, um, I should say. You have to be at least 18. But this derivation gives an opportunity for children under 18 who are lawful permanent residents to derive citizenship through their parents' application, through their parents' status. Excellent. Now, does it matter how a child obtains that legal permanent resident status? I mean, you have described a very um, sort of typical route, but it, does it ever happen that uh, someone has legal permanent resident status and uh, it's through a means other than family and looking back finds that he or she is able to derive? Well, that's a good question. It, it doesn't matter how you obtained your lawful permanent residence, um, but most children obtain their lawful permanent residence through their parents. Not all, but most. Um, either through the parents' petition of them or through um, someone else's family petition of a parent, and then the child gets to come on to that petition as well. Um, but let's take a scenario, a hypothetical scenario. So let's say the child was um, 15 and actually came here illegally and ended up um, uh, obtaining asylum. It was from a Central American country or Eastern European country or African country and it ended up obtaining asylum at 15. And let's say that that child uh, became a lawful permanent resident at 17. Well, if for some other reason mom or dad um, naturalized before the child turned 18 and the child was living in legal physical custody of the dad or of the parents who became a, a U.S. citizen, then yes, that would be fine. That child would have derived citizenship as well. It's just not very, those scenarios don't happen that often. But yes, it's possible. Right. And how about the Section 322 process? Yeah, so the Section 322 process is a newer process. There was an old Section 322, but it was updated um, in 2000 with the Citizenship Act of 2000. Um, and this is something that I always preface with the fact that you're hardly ever going to see a Section 322 candidate walk into your office. And the reason why is I call it the Expatriate Citizenship Act. And and it's because it, it the requirements are such that it's only for children who are under 18 now and are living abroad in the legal and physical custody with a U.S. citizen parent. So it isn't for kids who are living here. It's for kids who are living abroad with their the U.S. citizen parent. It's my understanding that 
Um, there are a bunch of people in France who tried to encourage, who pushed this through. But there are a lot of expats in, in, in France who are U.S. citizens and figured out that they wanted their children to become citizens. Their children were under 18, but they didn't have a method because they didn't acquire it at birth for some, for some reason. Um, and, uh, because they didn't fulfill all the requirements that were required at birth. That was the reason. But they, the parents weren't ready to move the United States and immigrate the child because their lives were in another country, in France. And so what this law allows, it allows the parent to facilitate citizenship for a child um, as long as the child, the parent's a U.S. citizen, the child's living in the legal physical custody of the parent. And um, the, the kicker is that the child has to do all this before eight, her 18th birthday. It's not automatic. She has to have an interview and be sworn in unless the CIS waives the interview. And the child has to be here for the interview in a non-immigrant temporary status, such as a student visa or such as a visitor's visa. So there are these complicated rules about it, but essentially the bottom line is, and I'll give you an example, is that um, Maria is living in Mexico and has a child, Jose, in Mexico. Um, Maria is a U.S. citizen, was born, born here, but left the parents took her to Mexico when she was three or four years old, and then you'll find out when you learn more about the requirements for acquisition that, that Jose didn't acquire citizenship at birth for lots of reasons. Um, but now Jose's 14, and Maria wants Jose to become a citizen of the United States for various reasons, including maybe she wants him to go to college here, or, you know, why not become a citizen of the United States too, right? And so... Um, what has to happen is she has to apply um, for for uh, Section 322 citizenship on something called an N600K application. She applies for it, and then she gets a receipt notice, and then she gets an appointment date, all in the United States, and then she and Jose go to the American consulate closest to, to where she lives in Mexico and applies for a visitor's visa for Jose, for the express purpose of saying, hey, look, here's the application for the N600K, for the uh, Section 322 citizenship. Here's a receipt notice. Here's a copy of the interview. It's in two weeks. Can you please give us this visitor's visa? They're supposed to, and I've heard some counselors aren't doing this, but they're supposed to give a visitor's visa for a month or so, so that Jose, with mom, because he's only 14, has his inter- comes to the United States, has his interview, and is uh, granted citizenship under Section 322 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, then what Jose does is up to him. If he decides to stay in the United States, that's between him and his mother. He's now a U.S. citizen. If he decides to return to Mexico, that's up to him. You know, he's a Mexican citizen, too. He was born there. Um, so that's Section 322, very different from derivation and from acquisition, and you won't see many instances of it because people don't want in your office asking for it because those people are in France or Mexico or Egypt or wherever. Yeah, right. I, I've never had a case like this. Have you? No, I have um, been asked a lot of questions about it. And the scenarios I've seen are that aunt is coming into the office. So Jose's aunt who lives in Stockton, California or New York City comes into your office. So my sister wants to 
ha- help her, her, my nephew, her son, get citizenship. Is there anything we can do about this? And that's the way I've heard of it coming up. Well, it's good to know. The, you've mentioned that um, some of the requirements for acquisition and derivation uh, vary depending on age and timing of application. Let's talk a little bit about how you discern, you know, what rules apply where. So um, we have these cheat sheets. I call them cheat sheets, right? And um, we have developed over the years, probably over the last 20 years, pretty comprehensive charts on um, citizenship for children. And these charts can be found on the Ian website in the Naturalization Library. Um, and um, we have three charts, chart A, B, and C. Charts A and B are for acquisition, and chart C is for derivation. And um, what these charts do is they summarize the legal requirements for each time period in which you might be able to qualify for either acquisition or derivation. Why are there two charts for acquisition? One is for children born in wedlock, that is legitimate children, and the other is for children born out of wedlock. But really, these charts are, we think, the best way to process this information and to determine whether or not uh, your client acquired citizenship at birth or derived it. Um, even if your client is now 70 years old, you go back to the old chart, old part of the chart, and see if maybe he or she acquired or derived back, back you know, when he was born 70 years ago. Yeah, I've always relied on your charts. Thank you for putting that together. Another issue I want to talk just quickly about the charts, if I could, is um, we lawyers love footnotes for some reason. And and these charts have a bunch of footnotes. And I really encourage people, um, not for light reading, but for when they, they figure out their analysis of a client situation, to always look at the charts. It's uh, because the charts can help define, not the charts, I mean the footnotes. The footnotes can help define what the chart, uh, what the legal requirement really means. Because all of the, there's been a lot of litigation over the years, like the case you had mentioned previously during this interview. There's been, there's been a lot of litigation defining some of the terms um, and some of the constitutional issues involved in, in citizenship for children because there's been a lot of litigation over equal protection arguments. There's been a lot of litigation around some of these charts talk about illegitimate versus legitimate. They talk about whether or not there's been a legal separation of the parents, which could determine one of the factors which could determine whether or not the child acquired or derived citizenship. So very important to look at these footnotes. And one of the charts, chart C on derivation, has about 40 footnotes. Um, so I just wanted to give a plug for the footnotes in this case. Um, Thank you. So what are some of the situations in which these cases arise? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, What we're finding more and more of a lot of these situations is in the criminal law context, actually, unfortunately. Um, and, And what we're finding is that a lot of federal public defenders, um, are asking a lot of these questions and litigating a lot of these cases because what's happening is uh, someone is being charged with and then convicted of a crime and they're serving their, their prison sentence 
um, whether that crime be drug sales or uh, burglary, whatever it is, they're, they're serving their, their, jail, their prison sentence. And then they're ending up being put into removal proceedings and deported. And, 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 and then what happens is um, they have a family here. They've been here for a long time, if not most of their lives, you know, close to most of their lives. And they end up sneaking back across the border illegally because they've been deported. Um, and then what happens is they get caught, and once again, they are back in the um, realm of the criminal justice system, and the um, federal public defender is defending them because they're being charged with um, felony reentry, felony illegal reentry in the United States, and they might have a prison sentence of three years just because they reentered the United States illegally after the deportation. But the best defense is that they're U.S. citizens, right? And so what's happening is there are some people who fall in this category who were U.S. citizens and didn't know it, and some people who maybe were U.S. citizens and it needs to be litigated because of some of the um, blurriness of the um, of the legal requirements. So that's one way that it's coming up a lot. Interesting. Now, before we wrap this up, is there anything we missed or any additional resources from the ILRC or in the Immigration Advocates Network library that you'd like to highlight? Well, um, I just wanted to, before we go there, one other uh, more very common scenario comes up is what I call the two-for-one citizenship issue. So it's really important that when when you're helping people naturalize, adults naturalize, that you inquire about their children and you point out to them that certain that these children are going to become citizens automatically when the parents naturalize and then you once they naturalize once they have the interview and their oath and they're sworn in that you encourage them to come back to you and then to uh, apply for a passport or an N600 certificate of natural of citizenship for their children so you get a two-for-one, the children at the, at the same time as the parents. Um, but having said that, the only two things that I, I want to highlight that we've talked about already are, A, use these charts. Now, some people like to go back to the original statutes, and you can do that. We have a, an old-timer practitioner who works with us who's wonderful, and that's his way of doing things. Um, if you do that, more power to you. To you. But... Most people rely on the charts, and the charts are pretty good. Other people, like Kurzban, that he has charts which are good, too. Actually, I think the Department of State has charts, too. So there are lots of charts floating around. And if everyone finds um, mistakes in ours, I'd love to be told about them. Um, you can get through to us through Ian, but I'd love to be told about the mistakes because they're very complicated, and sometimes people make mistakes. The other thing I'd like to mention is something that, that Pat mentioned before, that that, that it's really, really important to always figure out acquisition and derivation for any client, especially clients in, in, in removal proceedings, because you don't want your client being removed who's already a U.S. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for your time, and thanks to the Immigrant Legal Resource Center for uh, lending us your time. We appreciate it. Take thank care. you.